0: Hi, my name is Heather Martin Murdoch, and I was born and raised in Hawaii. Since I was little, I've always been really interested in creepy stories, in ghost stories, in urban legends. Hawaii was a really great place to grow up in to, and be interested in those sort of things. There's so many stories. Stories about Madame Pele, the volcano goddess. Stories about hitchhiking ghosts. Stories about haunted cemeteries stories of spirits from all over Asia that all converge in Hawaii. A coworker of mine told me this story a couple of months ago, and it really creeped me out because I had heard so many like it, but never one directly from the source. When he was little, his parents would find him sleepwalking around the house with a hand raised up above him like he was being pulled. When his parents would try and wake him up, and touch him, he would collapse to the ground like he had been dropped by someone and they didn't really know what was going on. They talked to a Hawaiian priest who advised them to sprinkle Hawaiian salt around the doors and to plant tea leaves on the outside of the house. These tea leaves acted as a protection against what the priest knew was coming through their house, night marchers. The house had been built on their path and if they didn't put up these protective elements, my coworker would have been taken in the night. Have you heard the story of- And written on the wall- and Everyone has
1: the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother, this Mister's happened Telling you stories of the old- country. There was this
0: girl- It was back when we were little kids. To find
1: out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American war. A
0: story behind the story. Because it's
2: just a story
1: hello and welcome to the just a story podcast i'm jake and i'm sam and we're here to tell you a story
2: each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again what our fears and fables myths and misdeeds say about us as humans
1: i want to take a second to thank all of you wonderful listeners
2: you are so pretty. You're our favorites. Good job at all the things you do. You're winning at life. Everyone wishes they were as cool as you. This is your
1: daily affirmation to listen to in front of the mirror.
2: It is. In fact, I will send you daily affirmations if you want them. Just let me know.
1: And I do want to thank a few people that have reached out to us, commented. They love the show, Johnny Roca and Debbie Q. Also. Glad to hear that we make Jesse Hall and Ed Boers-Mac laugh.
2: We make ourselves laugh, too.
1: I thought that's the only people we made laugh. I did,
2: too, honestly. I was just thinking that.
1: So it's, it's kind of nice. Our and audience
2: I, is doubled. Yes.
1: <laughs> and, you know, I do want to mention uh, Folklore Thursday, which is a really cool thing on Twitter. And they've also been supporting the show, helping us get the word out. But it's a great, great place for random folklore information. And especially on Thursdays. People just—it's a community that tweets and retweets you kind know, of the random things that people are interested in related to folklore. It is set in England, so there's a lot of British folklore. Uh-huh. But there's a lot of just international. Like folklore the people too. who
2: do it are based in England. Right. Okay. We'll tolerate
1: it. They're limeys.
2: We'll allow it. So I wanted to take a minute and remind all of you that we do more than just a story. We've also got a experimental historical audio drama
1: yeah 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 because who doesn't you just have to listen to it to yeah get
2: it. <laughs> it's hard to describe but it's called audio die museum and we've just started season two and we are launching into the wild and weird world of circus history over there and we would love for you to join us
1: and we also want you to reach out and give us your favorite urban legends and local folklore that you grew up with, that you grew up hearing that you grew up hearing stories about that scared you as you walked to your car at night.
2: We have had some listeners do that. The inspiration for last week's episode came directly from the Just a Story hotline. And we've also constructed this week's episode from listener feedback.
1: Right, and you heard her Tell the story at the beginning, and she suggested urban legends she grew up with in Hawaii.
2: And we were very excited to delve into that, and we both feel like we've learned a lot. But if you want to call the Just a Story hotline and be as awesome as these two listeners, you can do so by dialing the number 512 222 3375.
1: So now back to the story at hand. What's that? The Night Marchers.
2: It sounds terrifying.
1: So this is the episode where we attempt as hard as possible not to butcher Hawaiian language.
2: I don't have any background in Hawaiian language, so I can't even pretend to have like some sort of moral superiority
1: here. I saw Lilo and Stitch.
2: That's it. That's and it. I
1: saw that Brady Bunch episode.
2: Yeah, I didn't. Really. Really. <laughs>
1: But I really, really want to go, and I am extremely fascinated by all the information that we have learned about over the week.
2: This is one where we did not come to it with a big knowledge base, so we both feel like we have been enlightened in some way. And now we're going to share all our hard work with you.
1: So this week's episode is about the phantom night marchers. So these are also known as huaki'epo, meaning the night procession. And they've had reports of these nightly spectral marches kind of throughout the 20th century. Of course, folklorists started doing their thing in the 20th century. That thing that
2: folklorists do. Collecting stories, you
1: know. So most of the stories are collected between the 30s and the 70s. Okay. But there are stories from before them. And there are, of course, modern day stories.
2: I'm sure modern day episodes of annoying TV shows that go to investigate the night marchers.
1: Oh, I'm sure there are. I can't believe I haven't seen one. So these spectral night marches are seen by everyone.
2: Everyone? What do you mean everyone?
1: Anyone and everyone. So it's not isolated to only native Hawaiians.
2: Oh, okay. It can be
1: seen by Caucasians, tourists, locals, you know, Japanese Americans, anybody. There is some talk about if children can see them or not. Well, children
2: can always see ghosts.
1: There is that belief in Hawaiian culture, as is in a lot of cultures, that children and animals can sense these things coming on.
2: So there's controversy there, it would seem. Like, some people think that they're more sensitive to them, and some people think that they can't see them at all? Or they think they just sense them and don't see them?
1: Sense them and don't see them. Oh, that's interesting. And sometimes they'll just hear them.
2: Ooh. Okay, it's creepy.
1: So the first published reference to a phantom night march was in eighteen eighty three and this was a phantom army led by King Kamehameha spirit that had been seen on Hawaii. There's another early account of another phantom army led by his nephew on Maui, and it had supposedly left many dead people in its tracks. They
2: can kill people
1: they can oh, maybe. So these processions can include the spirits of chiefs, dead relatives, gods, goddesses, and their retinue. And the interesting thing about them is that, as with other kind of ghosts and other traditions, they go along the paths doing the things they did when they were alive.
2: So kind of residual energy, we think?
1: Who knows? Who I don't knows? really believe in ghosts. So it's interesting that it lines up with it. You don't believe in ghosts? Yeah. We're going to need to talk. <laughs> but all of this really stems from a tradition of real marches that occurred pre-colonially and, of course, after as well. Some of these real marches were written about in the 19th century in Hawaiian, far hawaiian language papers and of course these were like living real human beings these were the chiefs
2: okay so they were just reporting like people would on a festival or whatever in a newspaper today
1: well no it was actually them at that time even talking to the old timers getting their old stories
2: oh that's wonderful okay
1: yeah so at that time it started to kind of die out oh well because there were no more
2: People practicing. Not
1: really. Yeah. yeah. Okay. The original processions, like I said, were these highly ranked people, the chiefs, and they were sometimes so highly ranked that they were even considered divine.
2: Okay. So kind of Egyptian-ish in that way?
1: In a way. Okay. Lots of, sort of cultures have similar traditions. You know, they carried with them images and figurines representing gods. And it also included family guardian gods and spirit of dead kinfolk. So they felt like they were even marching with them at times, especially depending on the festivals and rituals that were going on.
2: So in the processions of the living, it was acknowledged that there was sort of ancestral spirit whose energy was involved in that procession.
1: And that, of course, was stronger at some times than others. So the chiefs... Who were the ones that were normally leading these processions? Very rarely ever appeared in public, and that was owing to some very interesting ideas. But you know, you were telling me some cool things about like their outfits and you know what they wear. So why don't you kind of like set the scene?
2: Don't call what they're wearing an outfit, dude.
1: <laughs> they're ceremonial garb.
2: So prepare yourself. I am about to butcher some words. So there was the mahio which is a feathered helmet, and the Ahualua, or the red garment, which was a feathered cloak. Now, the construction of these garments was ritualized and highly specific. The cloak was made exclusively by men. Women were not allowed to work with these fibers, again, owing to specific taboos surrounding the plant fibers that were used to create the garments. They would make a woven foundation out of plant fiber, and then they took feathers in red, yellow, and black, And attach those to the outside of the cloak. So the entire thing is covered in these gorgeous scarlet, gold, and black feathers. The ones I've seen have all been completely scarlet and gold, but apparently there are some that have black feathers as well. And interestingly, it took about 20,000 birds to make one cloak.
1: 20,000 birds? Yes. There are 20,000 birds on the island?
2: Well, yeah, there are.
1: The specific bird?
2: (laughs) Yes, there are. But another interesting fact is that the birds were caught and
1: released. Oh, were they like sacred birds? I
2: don't know if they were sacred. I don't know if it was just like they didn't want to kill off all the birds, so they'd always have more feathers. I don't know if it was just like conservation. Like
1: they were going to kill 20,000 birds to and make then, one outfit. And then
2: be like, oh, well, uh, that's the only one. Sorry. <laughs> we're going to need to find another bird. Uh, how, how do you feel that green? So there were these people who were specially trained bird catchers. And they had a variety of methods to capture the birds without killing them. And they'd use nets and snare them midair. Or they'd even put decoy birds on tree limbs that they'd covered in sticky substances. So the birds would come to see about the other birds. And then they'd
1: get stuck, like flypaper. And then they would take their feathers. Just a couple. Would they, like, naturally fall off? I think they would take a few. And then they'd let the bird go. Okay. It's like, hey, can I borrow a few feathers, man?
2: I don't, think they were gonna, I don't think there was any pretense of borrowing. I don't think they ever told the bird that fe- they would get the feathers back. I don't think it was like a feather check, like a coat check, where you came at the end of the night and got your number. Maybe. But the birds that were used were the Scarlet Hawaiian Honey Creeper, which is still around. And a wonderful name. Yes. And the Moho and the Mamo, which unfortunately are no longer around on Hawaii. And I don't think that's because of the native hunting. I think that is very directly due to... European influence. Deforestation. Yeah, things like that. But the last one, or the Mamo at least, the last one was seen in 1899. So they had a good long run when they were being used for the cloaks and helmets. And these uh, cloaks were worn over the shoulders, kind of like a cape, and secured by a drawstring. And they were worn for ceremonial occasions and during battle.
1: So a lot of those processions were for that, you know, ceremonial. They'd be going to battle, or they'd be just showing their force. Mm -hmm. You know, just kind of showing off almost.
2: Right. And these were brilliantly colored and super, I mean, you can imagine that red and gold coming through all the lush green in Hawaii. And the helmet or the mahio is interesting because it looks sort of like Greek helmets almost, you know, like where they have the the fitted part that goes over the head and then the horse mane thing that sticks up in the middle, kind of the Mohawk-y. But there was absolutely no evidence to suggest that there was any cross-cultural sharing between the Greeks and the Hawaiians. So it's a similar design, but there's no reason for it.
1: Two great civilizations just had awesome fashion sense. They
2: really did. Good for them. But these were interesting because they were made with a thick basket-woven frame that would be the foundation for the entire helmet and then over that frame they'd secure like a net of finer plant fibers and tie bunches of feathers all over that net and then sew it to the basket frame and they were actually pretty effective at deflecting blows during battle there were different shapes for different ranks and the kings or high chiefs would have a crescent shape kind of like a mohawk imagine a giant feather scarlet mohawk on a helmet
1: Yes, very badass. It's
2: very badass. And then the lesser nobles had what they call kind of a mushroom shape.
1: Less badass.
2: Less badass, but still pretty pretty cool. I would be, I would not be offended by a mushroom shape. I wouldn't sneeze
1: at it. You can have a mushroom hat. Thanks. So, you know, we were talking about the you know, taboos that are really related to all of this. And that is a very important element of the... Old Hawaiian cultural tradition, and it's something called kapu, and that's translated at that time as like forbidden, but can also mean sacred or holy. And nowadays, it's used kind of as a word as like keep out, like you might say as a warning on a door.
2: Yeah, actually, it's on a door in Lilo and Stitch, which we watched yesterday.
1: We did. Our kids research. were watching it. Yeah, <laughs> it was research.
2: But I thought that was kind of great. Good job, Disney.
1: But it was ancient Hawaiian code of conduct and laws and regulations. If you were to break these laws, you would be killed. Oh, oh. Yeah, it was not like you were just like a little in trouble.
2: It's not like if you used the wrong fork at a formal dinner.
1: Right. <laughs> Your mom would just slap you on the hand. Mm-hmm. That's not it. And so there were several different types of restrictions. Most importantly to this is the Kapuhuli, and that is, those are the restrictions placed on contact with chiefs.
2: Okay.
1: So the chiefs were in this huge procession. It was very important not to look at them. If you were to come in contact with them, if you were to go into their home, like you could not come in contact with their hair or their fingernail clippings. You could not look directly at them. And you could not be in sight of them with your head higher than theirs. And of course you could not wear red or yellow.
2: Oh, because that's what color the birds were.
1: There's another interesting part of this kapu system and that's, The aikapu, and that translates to sacred eating, it really separated men and women in a lot of things. They could not eat together. Women could not eat pork, certain types of bananas or coconuts, um, could not work with certain plant fibers, like Mm. you said. But this was abolished in 1819. So King Kamehameha is one of the great Hawaiian chiefs. He is the one that united all of the islands And he did this through a mixture of battle and conquering, but also through diplomacy. One of the ways he was a great diplomat is he had his, one of his lovely wives, the one that he liked the most, was Kaahumano, who kind of became his greatest advisor. She was related to many of the other great chiefs on the islands. And so that gave him political power. Mm -hmm. So when he died, he... Passed on his crown to his son, Mm -hmm. but he also left his favorite wife, who is not King Kamehameha's second's mother, kind of in charge. Okay. (laughs) And she kind of let it be known that she was in charge. (laughs) Okay. And she kind of abolished this bullshit of not eating together.
2: (laughs) I like her. I like her. I have to say, I like her.
1: But she was kind of like, yeah, I'm in charge. I'm I want to this. eat pork
2: if I want to eat pork. Exactly. <laughs> Sometimes and I want some bacon.
1: <laughs> so she abolished that by eating a forbidden meal with King Kamehameha II. So she offered him food. He ate it. And then no one killed anybody.
2: <laughs> Good call. Good call on not killing
1: anybody. But the importance of that is that this taboo system was so important. And it's why these processions were the way they were. So you'd have this large retinue of people, other chiefs, the high chief, hmm. <laughs> and of course they would have a herald.
2: Right. The herald would carry something called the kapu staff. But attendants would carry these short poles, and they had balls of either white or black bark fabric attached to them. Anyone who saw the herald coming with this pole would know that they needed to begin sort of this ritual of submission or
1: subservience,
2: which included removing their cloak and prostrating themselves before the chief
1: passed by. Right, and the amount that you'd have to like prostrate yourself and remove your clothes depended on how highly ranked he was. So if they weren't that highly ranked you just kinda squat.
2: <laughs> but if it was the king, you would have to take off all of your clothes and lie naked.
1: On the ground. On the ground. Or you would be killed.
2: I would okay, I'm on board. Let's get naked. These staffs were also put outside like the residence of the chief or if like he was going to be stationary for a while they'd be put around wherever he was and that created an area that was basically no trespassing. Keep out.
1: And so these extremely sacred chiefs, it was even taboo for their feet to touch the ground. And so they were frequently carried in litters, and they would often only go out at night. And this was in order to prevent the disruption of daily life. If they went out during the day and all of the workers, everybody working or planting or making baskets, etc., had to stop working and prostrate themselves, they would really mess everything up.
2: And it's a monkey wrench to be thrown in the, the gig work there.
1: And of course, he wanted to to not have the chance of his polluting shadow to fall on anything or anybody.
2: So what would happen? You'd just... You'd just... They'd just kill you? Just there, on the spot? Yeah. Okay.
1: They would frequently have, like, an executioner type of person with them on the march.
2: Holy cow. Did they ever, like... Did you ever get taken back for trial or any other purpose?
1: Sometimes your family would also be punished. Oh, well, sometimes people weren't even, like, seized for sacrifice.
2: Later use, I guess. Get
1: a little extra something out of it. We've talked about a lot of really important elements of this Hawaiian culture. The chiefs, these very powerful people seen almost as deities at times. This has of course, changed throughout the history of the people as to how important this was and why they were having these night marches and the importance of them at the time Relating to, you know, coronations and funerals and holy ceremony. So
2: were they marching at night? So, like, it wasn't just like the chief would run over to see his grandmother at night. It was like these processions would happen at night so they didn't disrupt daily life even then?
1: Right. I mean, oh, okay.
2: I hadn't put that together.
1: <laughs> they did happen during the day. Uh-huh. Don't get me wrong. But that's one of the reasons they frequently occurred at night.
2: Okay. That makes sense.
1: But, you know, of course, the Europeans came.
2: Yeah, they did. I think it's kind of amazing because I was researching the first European contact with the islands of Hawaii, and the Sandwich Islands. Yes, the Sandwich Islands. That's such a terrible name. Hawaii's better.
1: So much um, better. So much better. I mean, who wants to be named after a sandwich? I know it's not. Yeah, I know name. you're.
2: I know I you know. know. I know you're making a bad joke. It's a yeah, joke. Got it. It's a joke. You get it. I do.
1: It's a dad joke.
2: It, it's a bad dad joke. <laughs> I found it so interesting because even that has sort of generated its own set of legends and its own kind of folklore.
1: Right. It is interesting.
2: Captain James Cook was the explorer who first led a European group to the archipelago of Hawaii. And he was famous for making detailed maps of Newfoundland. He also made the first European contact with eastern coastline of Australia, the Hawaiian Islands, and was the first to circumnavigate New Zealand.
1: There's lots of notches on his belt.
2: Yes. And on January 18th, 1778, he came to Hawaii and he landed in Kauai and named the islands the Sandwich Islands because he got to do that in his little
1: brain. Right. You stick a flag in there and name it whatever the hell you want. You name
2: it something silly like
1: the Sandwich Islands. We know it's named after the Earl of Sandwich. We okay. did. The
2: fourth. <laughs> the fourth Earl of Sandwich, in fact. um, It doesn't
1: make it less silly sounding. It sounds so silly.
2: He kind of had some back and forth with the people of Kauai. It wasn't great. It wasn't bad. They weren't like mortal enemies. So then he goes up to Alaska to go look for the Northwest Passage, as you do if you're an explorer. As you do. As you do. And that's pretty
1: much the entire point of exploring. That's all I learned in History (laughs) Class.
2: Find the Northwest Passage, or you don't. No one does. No one does. Spoiler alert. So he does this for nine months and he goes up there in early February, starts heading north in early February because he's a brilliant planner. But anyway, he does that. They come back about nine months later to resupply and they go back to Hawaii and they're circling the island in a clockwise fashion. And there's something about the sails that apparently. Looks vaguely like some iconography of a Hawaiian god. And so Cook decides that the Hawaiians are being so kind to him because they think he's a god.
1: Of course he does.
2: I'm going to go with maybe they didn't. Maybe they just thought he was kind of an important guy.
1: Maybe they were treating him with respect like they would any other chief. Yeah. But okay, sure, Cook. You can be a god. You're the god. Okay. Okay. This is the god Lono. Correct. They were celebrating like a harvest kind of festival.
2: It's also like a four month festival. So he had kind of a big window to like make his return during the festival of Lono. Right. But whatever. Okay. So Cook thinks that they think he's a god and they are being really great to him. So he lands on Hawaii this time, the big island. The chief comes out and like apparently gives him his cloak. And his helmet just gives it to him because he's like, you're awesome. Good job on your boats. Cook is like very gracious and things are going really well. And he's there for about a month. And then he leaves in January of 1779. And he sails away. And unfortunately, his mast breaks and he has to go back to Hawaii. And that's when things kind of go south. Let me guess. (laughs) Okay.
1: He decided to do a little slaughter
2: think there was any blatant slaughter involved he had a plan he was going to kidnap the king of hawaii okay yeah just that so on february 14th he marches into town and decides that he's going to kidnap king kalaniopo and the king is like going to go with him and cook believes it's because he thinks he's a god and some people think that he was just going to go with him because he thought it would be a much bigger fight and possibly hurt the people of his village if he didn't So he's like going along with cook back to his ship and his wife appears and starts begging him not to go. And then the priest come and beg him not to go. And then there's like a mob of people begging him not to go. And then the accounts diverge again. But even the men sailing with cook said that he'd kind of just lost his shit and started being like irrationally violent Hmm. and aggressive for no good reason and someone says that one of cook's attendants struck the king with the broadside of his sword some accounts leave that out some people say that they like got back on the ship and kana a high ranking official with hawaiian group picks up the navigator with the cook party and drops him off the side of the ship nice <laughs> and then some people claim that cook was hit on the back of the head and stabbed in the back while he was trying to launch boats And then some people say that they were like already on the ship and he was stabbed, but he died. At any rate, Cook dies.
1: And the European lore says that they like strung him up like a Bugs Bunny cartoon and roasted him over a fire.
2: Well, they did. Kind of. Sort of. (laughs) There's a lot of legend surrounding that. People believe that he was, that they cannibalized him, that they ate him. They didn't.
1: They weren't cannibals.
2: No. But their funeral rites, which they would do for any great man killed in battle, included disemboweling the body and then baking it to facilitate the removal of bones, which would then be displayed sort of like religious relic in the Catholic Church. They'd be put in places for veneration or, you know, to kind of honor the fallen
1: hero or warrior. So this is actually kind of something that was being done in Europe at the time.
2: Right. (laughs) But it wasn't being done by people wearing awesome featherhead dresses, which I think may have been where the problem was <laughs> for the Europeans. So they did they did cook cook. Aw. Aw, I know. On the Sandwich Islands. Aw. <laughs> the Captain Cook Society says very clearly on their webpage that Captain Cook was not eaten. Good to know. The Hawaiians were not cannibals. So... That's taken care of. No worries there. Then they did brought back some of his bones to the HMS resolution. They kept his long bones and his jaw bones and his scalp was given to someone. But the rest are returned to the British and they gave him a proper burial at sea. So that's kind of a compromise. Good. And some people say that they did that because of the whole God thing. And some people say that they did it just to be nice. And some people say that they did that because they were afraid that his ghost would haunt them.
1: You know, one thing you didn't mention that you told me was that the reason for that clockwise, it was a clockwise rotation around the island, was he was, I mean, Cook was just... tootling, Navigating and mapping and looking for ports and things like that. But there was a tradition during that time period of having this march, this procession. At that time, to honor the god, Lona, to doing a clockwise procession around the island. Right. So yeah. that is something that gives, like, a little credence to their, like, oh, maybe there's some divinity stuff here.
2: And even if they thought he was a chief, if they're kind of deifying their own chiefs, maybe they're giving him that same sort of respect.
1: But there's a lot of gray area in that, I think.
2: Yeah, but it wasn't like, they greeted me as a god because I was white. No. <laughs>
1: <Yeah. laughs> Sorry. There's actually
2: a lot of interesting writing and um, a lot of paintings done showing the death of Cook, the death of Captain Cook. It was a very popular topic for plays and paintings and things at that time because people really felt that it undermined the idea of the noble savage. That was something that was becoming popular in anthropological texts and ethnologies at the time, and they were like, "Oh, but look, they're terrible!" And they're I'm like, because. "Cannibals!" I was like, "They were so nice. They gave him back some bones and stuff." <laughs>
1: It seems like they treated him in a way that they would treat another great chief. Right. Who and, just
2: happened to kidnap their king and kind of be a dick.
1: But those, that's what the chiefs were doing. They were very warring tribes. Right. Although there was some diplomacy, like I said. But there was a lot of battle and really, really interesting stuff about that. Yeah, the arrival and
2: um, death of Captain Cook.
1: So that did bring about the, in a European settlement... Of Hawaii, and there's a lot of back and forth between different countries and things like that, but you know I, I do find interesting that there is an element of that like the procession in that story, mm-hmm. yeah it's a big element of it and ghost and ghosts back to that our kind of night marcher story now that we have a little more background on that Hawaiian tradition, you know these night marches, like I was saying, kind of really developed over the last. 150 years, kind of as the real processions died out, as the kingdom of Hawaii was no more, as the missionaries came and took over the culture of Hawaii, really banning the Hawaiian traditions, including the hula.
2: No, nobody bans the hula. I mean, think about it. Nobody should ban the hula. Nobody puts baby in a corner and nobody bans a hula.
1: <laughs> they banned the hula. They banned all the gods. They originally helped create the written Hawaiian language.
2: Uh-huh. And then they were like, no more.
1: Yeah, then they like banned it from being taught in schools at the end of the 19th century.
2: Mm, this is, reminds me of Indian boarding schools and it makes me
1: nauseous. But as the real traditions died out, these phantom...
2: Embodiments?
1: Embodiments, yeah. Embodiments came about and became a lot stronger.
2: Sort of replacing the tangible processions.
1: Right. And while it develops its own folklore, it's really tied in with these ancient traditions of these real marches. And so you have the important element of like family mm-hmm. and of this kind of kinfolk being involved. The Hawaiian culture, theology has lots of gods and heroes and is polytheistic and is a very important element of that family and family spirits and family guardians.
2: So is it like ancestor kind of
1: stuff? Right. A lot of the traditions in Hawaii and the culture in Hawaii has a lot of ties to Asia. Okay. And Polynesia. Okay. Okay which is where the settlers came from.
2: So I originally thought that the point you were making was that the polytheistic pantheon sort of reflected family, but it's actually more literal than that. There are actually ancestors and ancestral guardians and that sort of thing involved in the pantheon.
1: In a way, they're really involved more in your life. Okay. They are watching over you. So I was reading through some of the old anthropological texts, about this. And one thing I found really interesting was that they sounded like these kind of the old stories, the stories the old people would tell you, And mm-hmm. you know, saying that they saw processions of spirits of dead ancestors who had been transfigured into volcanic flames, sharks, water spirits, humpbacked thunder beings, or whatever the principal embodiment was of either a family's ancestors or its guardian gods. So these marchers would escort the dying person in the family, or their spirit, to the afterworld. Which is a really important element also in the tradition, is that you need kind of help getting on to the afterlife. Mm -hmm. And that's also really important in some Asian traditions, too.
2: There's also some of that in Native American cultures, especially the men. No, you're right. Women went on, men needed help moving, which I think is so interesting.
1: I buy that. You know, when the person died, they saw these spirits. They saw this procession. They were overjoyed. They were happy. They were being greeted by their ancestors, by their family gods, and brought into the better place, the, the afterlife. And so once a person's remains had been deposited in the family god's natural element, the living relatives anxiously watched for traditional signs of the arrival of a procession.
2: <laughs> it's really interesting. Yeah, and
1: so just like... Back in the day, when they would have these sort of processions for high ranking funerals, and now it's seen as done for your family members that have died. Okay. And one, you know, one kind of interesting thing that was pointed out in some of the papers I read is that these marchers and they are not la pu. Okay. And say those are evil, spiteful, troublemaking spirits of the dead. And those are the ones that. Wonder the Earth. they're kind of discarded by their family and uncared for by the living. and they you know, just kind of make trouble, and they get that way because, like they're not taken care of, they did not have this procession to bring them on into the afterlife.
2: so if you don't want your family member to become a Lapu spirit, you take care of them and you do right by them,
1: so these phantom marchers in this fashion are seen in a very positive light. Seen so like with awe and excitement, happiness, pride even. Mm-hmm. There's, this is your family and they're taking care of your loved ones.
2: It's like, it's a very comforting notion, I would think. Like to see like the, the honorifics and the, Ceremony and that kind of level of dignity ascribed to someone in your own family that was once reserved for the highest of chiefs.
1: Right, you could think of it as you know, your patriarch or matriarch and things like that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, other details of the march in general that usually occurs at nighttime is. Is this
2: Phantom March? Yes. Okay.
1: That's where we are now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Just making sure.
1: All Phantom March.
2: All ghosts from here on out. Yes.
1: Okay, got it. And so they often occur at nighttime. Frequently the last. Four days of Hawaiian moon phases before the new moon. So it's very dark. Makes sense. The moon is waning. And, you know, some people even say it occurs, like, around anniversaries, around places of importance for those that were living. And people still, there are those current traditions to where if you see them.
2: You see the Phantom Night Marchers.
1: You have to prostrate yourself. You have to hide. You need to take your clothes off.
2: That sounds familiar.
1: Yeah, and there are, like Heather said in the opening, there are some traditional ways of protecting yourself, such as Hawaiian salts or tea leaves, or even urinating on yourself.
2: I read that, too, and it said that may just be a natural occurrence of seeing the night marchers. (laughs) But that reminded me of our old hag research, where people were like, you need a witch bottle. Pee in a bottle. Pee in a bottle, you're in his magic.
1: Well, so they were saying people that are worried about this do carry around like Hawaiian salt with them and things like that. It's been <laughs> carrying on a witch bottle too. Brilliant. It's like works if you're in Scandinavia, Newfoundland, Labrador, yeah. Just carry a bottle of pee with you. You'll be good.
2: That is great advice. Good luck getting that through customs.
1: But it's less than three ounces.
2: There's the key folks. There you go. TSA will haunt you no more. And neither will anything else with your witch bottle. Order now. Go to our
1: website. So, processions are come across in lots of different ways. You can hear them, you can see them. In some areas, not all areas, they often see torches. So, they'll see lights kind of in the distance, walking along the beach or walking along old paths. And this is actually tied to a different Hawaiian legend of the Minahuna.
2: Minahuna? Are those the kind of elven people or yes. yeah I read about those and
1: they have very like elvish traditions like they're very good craftsmen
2: okay so very like Icelandic sort of elvish you think I think that's the closest tie
1: but they're small in stature mm-hmm. yeah you know, but in reading about it it was kind of interesting we talked about this kind of post-european folklore like this has developed the menahuna might be as well you know some folklorists say yes and no, you know, they... Oh, they, wait, they, 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 they debate argue. about it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. they that's do that.
2: That's what they do. Yeah.
1: But Catherine Luomela says that it is just post-European contact mythology because this term was used at that time just to describe someone of low class and not low
2: stature. stature.
1: <laughs> but interesting nonetheless. Sometimes they'll hear, like, this traditional Hawaiian music Drums, chanting. Flutes. mm -hmm. Some people believe that you can tell who is marching by what you hear. So the gods and goddesses will march only to the chanting of their names and their deeds. Personal or family guardian gods will chant and they'll have instruments. And spirits of chiefs will follow the traditions established in life. By either marching silently or with the accompaniment of music. Okay. Whatever they did back in the day.
2: Oh, so whatever that particular chief did. Oh, that makes sense. I also read that there's like some really specific layouts and formations that they march in. Like if there are women present with the marchers, they march in alternating rows hmm. and they march five across. Like, There are only enough torches to go on the inside. Like the people in the ends don't hold them or they hold them to the inside. It's some really interesting stuff. Like some people get really specific. They like their night
1: marchers orderly. Well, they had to follow the tradition set in real life. Right. With that, they're also going to march on those same paths that they did in real life, no matter what's there now.
2: Oh, good. So you could have, like, Kinko's built on one of these paths, and they're coming through? Sure. Okay. I actually read about that, too, and I thought there were some really interesting things. Like, there are people that were just, like, blogging about, like, how they'd grown up with the night marcher stories, And there's this one kid who said that he could hear drumming. He never saw anything, back to the, like, kids don't see it thing. But he would hear the drumming, and it would, like, shake the whole house. And he heard it night after night when he was staying with his grandparents. And he told him about it. And the grandfather's like, I know what that is. And, like, he was in the room with him one night and heard the drumming with him and was like, okay, well, don't go in the back of the house. And then eventually... He took off the back part of his house, like deconstructed it and moved it around to the front because he believed the back part of his house was in the path of the night marchers. Oh, because
1: they were going through it. Right. Right. They'll go through a house. They'll go through a car. They'll go through anything, whatever's in their path. They won't cause any destruction.
2: But you still have to prostrate yourself or risk death. Death. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And then there was one story of an old man who had some horses and had a horse stable and his horses kept dying just mysteriously in the night he would come out in the morning and his horses were dead he decided after talking to some locals that he should probably move his barn because it was in the path of the night marchers and he did and then his horses stopped dying Hmm. Hmm. and one of the other interesting features of the night marchers is that the idea of ancestry and lineage plays a big part with them But supposedly if you see them and you don't prostrate yourself you can be forced to march with them or be dead and have to do the night marches with them from now on or the other way that you get by with it if you look at them is if you have a relative or family member who's already part of the march so if you have that heritage you're spared
1: You know, one thing I think is interesting about this is it fits with the thing we talk about a lot uh, on this show. It's cultural norms.
2: Right. That is one of our things.
1: And so, one of our things. It's
2: our thing. It's a thing. We talk about Freud
1: and cultural norms, as you do. It's seen as very culturally normal, especially if you have this vision with other people.
2: So if you're out with some guys and you all see the night marchers.
1: Right. A lot of a lot of stories are about people out hiking or they're out uh, night fishing. And if only one person sees it, you know, the concern is, oh, you know, is this a hallucination? Are they saying it because they're trying to get something out of this? Is it just coming from their gut, which is the Hawaiian location of like emotion and intelligence? So, you know, if he's alone and nothing bad comes from it, then it can be seen as normal and fitting in with cultural traditions.
2: So, like, would it be like somebody saying that he saw them and wanting you to move your barn? Kind of like, oh, you're going to need to move that barn because the night marchers come through here? Kind of like selfish motives? Yeah, or and just... like
1: another thing is like you know someone's like drunk and they just like claim they saw the night marchers or they use that as like an excuse for something.
2: Okay. So we've talked about like how the story is told and the sort of source material that's used, but why do you think people like to tell the story or feel they need to tell the story?
1: You know, I, I think we'd be amiss if we didn't say because it's a fun ghost story. It's the best ghost story. It's a great ghost story. I really like it. And so, of course, just telling it to get a scare out of somebody, just to have fun, is sociable communication. With that... It can also confirm your beliefs. So if you've seen it before and someone else is, oh, well, let me tell you about the time I saw the night marchers. Let me tell you about the time my friend woke up in the night seeing them. It also confirms those beliefs.
2: Which is something that we do just in general when we're telling ghost stories. Like we, everybody shares their own experience or the thing that happened to their mom. You know, like it makes you feel less crazy. But that it's a specific group or form I guess, gives it even more credence?
1: No, definitely. And also, you know, it educates listeners on what to do if they come across this. You know, learning about those ancient traditions of the taboos.
2: In a way, they probably wouldn't if they were not saturated in this culture. You don't grow up knowing that you need to take off your clothes and prostrate yourself when a chief comes by or a king comes by because they're... Few and far between, I guess. Like, any kind of figurehead like that is not going to be around in most modern culture.
1: Right, but you now know that if you were to see this spectral night march, this ghostly king, you would know exactly what to do.
2: That's a really interesting way to preserve culture. Tell people they'll die if they don't do it. (laughs)
1: Hey, Catholics have been doing the, you're going to hell thing for (laughs) millennia. Yeah,
2: fair enough. Crazy Catholics.
1: I mean, like you said, there is definitely a nostalgia there. You're recalling the past, but also sharing your ethnic heritage. It's a way to preserve some of that. So there's some cultural continuity there.
2: Right. And I think that it gives weight to the cultural practices, too, because it brings them into modern day. It makes them tangible. It makes their effect very real. Like you do this or you die, like I said, and you are allowed to interact with the past and with culture in a way that we're normally barred from if we are not directly exposed to it.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's now not just a story. It's something that's real, in a way. In a way. Also, some personal continuity here. You know, this is related to your ancestors. Not only are these stories of your ancestors, but they could be the ones marching right by your house in the middle of the night.
2: That's... Comforting-ish?
1: Depends on how you look at it.
2: I, I tend to like the morbid, so I kind of think it's nice.
1: So one Hawaiian social worker said, In the back of our minds, there's always the old. It does come back. You have a feeling that your ancestors are always here, always with you.
2: See, I told you it was nice. So now that we've really thoroughly looked at the night marchers, I think it's important to look at some of the bigger motifs, and how they're present and prevalent in other cultures.
1: Yeah, it just shows how important these motifs are to us as humans.
2: Oh, that's kind of what we do. Hmm. Hmm. So, one element of this that I think is sort of important, paramount, is the procession and the ghostly procession.
1: Right, this is a very, very ancient tradition.
2: So that can easily be related to the Wild Hunt. Odin. Odin. The Wild Hunt has a long and storied history, and it is prevalent in so many European cultures. And it's this idea of sort of the souls of the dead riding at night... In one way or another, for one purpose or another, but it's generally just like a bunch of dead people, somebody leading the pack, and them being visible to the living for a short period of time. That is the most basic way I can state it. It was a European folk myth, and it was basically like a ghostly or supernatural group of huntsmen, and it was very much associated with like
1: Odin or Odin and that Odin myth is also references like out hunting witches and evil spirits and things like that.
2: Right, in some cases. So it's believed that the riders might be fairies or elves or just dead people and that varies across cultures and time and place. One of the only consistent elements is that if you see the hunt, you're usually going to be met with some kind of giant catastrophe and it can be like across your entire culture like a plague or Best case scenario, whoever witnessed the hunt just might die.
1: It's a great best case scenario. I know.
2: <laughs> and in some instances, if the hunt passes closely to a house where people are sleeping, the spirits of the person who is sleeping can be pulled away and forced to join the hunt. So I think that's like a way of explaining people who go to sleep and don't wake up. And the story that I was most interested in was the story of Harlequin or Hallequin's hunt. And that's a French interpretation of the wild hunt.
1: Okay, so like the pattern.
2: <laughs> um. Well, the pattern is named after the costume oh. of a character mm. who is called Harlequin or Hallequin, and he, like
1: like in Batman,
2: not Harley Quinn. No, that's completely different. Okay. Um. She's anyway. No, we're not getting into that. He was kind of a stock devil figure in the passion plays that kind of circled around Europe. The triumph. Floats and things like that.
1: Antisemitism.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, good old-fashioned European anti-Semitism. But he was a stock character, and he wore, like, a black mask, and he wore a suit that had the pattern on it. He became sort of a romantic hero when they kind of let go of the passion play and decided that maybe some other entertainment was in order. He was also co-opted and used in other forms of entertainment, and the people who played the Harlequin character sort of came up with clowning. And it was based on a certain type of acting that was done called Harlequinade. And it's an exaggerated form of pantomime.
1: Right. And, and the modern clowns derive from that and derive from miming.
2: This goes back to the time when he was more of a devil. In the 12th century in France. And this person is a monk named Orderic Vitalis, which fantastic name, by the way, wrote down the story of a monk who encountered demons around the coast of Normandy harlequin was the leader of this roving band and he's described as a black-faced emissary of the devil roaming the countryside chasing the souls of the damned to hell and this was interesting and important because at this time the church was really capitalizing on the idea of purgatory would
1: you like to explain purgatory this is when purgatory was invented congratulations It's not that ancient. I mean, this is old. But, uh, I mean, purgatory is where souls can go to repent. Okay. <laughs> so, it is a holding cell for heaven. It's the lobby. It's the lobby where you wait till they pull your number.
2: Like Beetlejuice? Exactly.
1: Okay. <laughs> Catholic bells.
2: The thing about purgatory is that the living can, like, put in a
1: good word for you. They could even buy it.
2: Right. So merchandising.
1: Mm-hmm. Protestant Reformation.
2: <laughs> things like that. The living needed to assist the dead in getting out of purgatory. And they could do this through personal prayer. But really, like, the thing that was going to get you that gold star, move you to the front of the line, was if you hired a priest to say a mass for the soul of the dead person. And there was a lot of writing and talk about the souls of people who were in purgatory returning to the living to kind of ask them to do these things for them.
1: And we still in mass, pray for those in purgatory.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do. And they'd come and be like, you have to alleviate my suffering. I'm in terrible pain. Fix everything. Ghost would.
1: Give the church money.
2: Basically. So on January 1st of 1149, a monk named Washelin, guessing there, says that he came across this party, this hunt, this army, whatever they are, and... The classes were still represented after death.
1: And so these are souls that have come out of purgatory.
2: Mm-hmm. There were peasants who carried all their worldly goods on their shoulders, which of their peasants, I'm guessing, is like a chair. and uh, Mud. Mud. They have mud and sadness. And maybe a pox.
1: <laughs> and, and bubonic plague. Yeah.
2: A rat named Fred. And then there were women after the peasants, directly after the pre- peasants, because women. Uh yeah. And they're riding side saddle, because they're ladies, but their saddles are covered with hot nails. And so every time the horse jumps, they come off the saddle and come back down, and they're covered with burns and things, which you can just Freud your little heart out over that. See why they were riding side saddle. I don't think it helped much. And then there were religious men, and then there were... Religious men who all wore the same black cloaks, like they didn't get any fancy robes. And I guess that was their punishment. And they just like walked along and said how sorry they were that it had come to this and all the souls of the people were here, but they're here too. I don't know exactly what the religious men were doing. And then there were knights and noblemen and men of rank and they were on horseback. They were fully armored and fully armed, but their munitions, like swords, spears, etc., were all red hot and burned their flesh. They all complained about the smell of the burning flesh. Ooh, morbid. I know, right? And they had no color, just blackness and the flickering of fire, he says. And he was very sad because he recognized many of the people in the procession, and he had thought that they were good Christians. And that blew his mind a little because here they are in purgatory, even though he thought they were good people. So it doesn't matter how good you are, your family's still going to need to pay the church a little something. Some people with the group were carried on briars and subjugated to various physical punishments, especially those who died without completing penance for their crimes or sins. And it's meant to kind of scare sinners straight, I think, is the purpose of this soliloquy. But here's the interesting part.
1: The monk wanted to steal a ghost horse. That sounds like a sin that would get you into purgatory. I'm just saying.
2: I just wanted to prove to everybody that it was real because you knew people would think he was nuts if he went back and he said he saw this and he didn't have a ghost horse to prove it. Of course. Yeah. A ghost came and was like, hey, don't take my horse. I need my horse. I didn't do anything to you. And the monk was like, I just want to show my friends. And he was like, okay, fine, get on it. And so like the monk goes to get on the horse and like he puts his foot in the stirrup and it like burns him. Then a knight comes out and is like, don't hurt him. And then another knight comes out and he's waving his sword and he says, Wretches, why are you murdering my brother? Leave him and be gone. And it happened that this knight was his brother
1: Robert. Oh, so his ancestors were in this ghostly procession.
2: Yes. And he says, I'm amazed by your hardness and obstinacy. I brought you up after both our parents died and loved you more than any living person. I sent you to schools in France, kept you well provided with clothes and money, and in many other ways, furthered your progress. Now you have forgotten all this and disdain even to recognize me. Then he goes on to tell him that the mass he had said for her, the other brother that had died, Ralph, worked. And he's like, I'm sure you'll do the same for me within a year. And then he tells him, I can stay no longer with you, my brother, for I am compelled to hasten after the wretched host. Remember me. I beg you. Help me with your prayers and compassionate alms. In one year from Palm Sunday, I hope to be saved and released from all my torments by the mercy of my creator. Take thought for your own welfare. Correct your life wisely, for it is stained by many vices. And you must know that your life will not be long enduring. (laughs) man get your shit together and say some prayers but i like the story because it does have that element of like ancestry and the element of moving at night and these cultural contexts like it represents the beliefs of the time and
1: well and it has these souls that are not properly taken care of can mm-hmm. have be kind of punished and wandering souls
2: right Which are not
1: the ones in the Night March, but the other guys.
2: Yeah, the ones they're not, the Lapoot. Yes. And I got all of that, that wonderful story, from a site called Medievalist.net. And I would suggest that you go check out some of their articles, because they're really thorough and well-written and comprehensive. In Britain, there's a similar tradition, and it is led by King Arthur, that wild hunt.
1: Ah, the great king, the great mythical king. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm.
2: Interestingly, all of the night hunts in Britain have dogs. And that's where like hellhounds
1: come from. Well, you know, I didn't mention, but there actually are sometimes dogs in the night marches.
2: Oh, that is interesting. And the
1: real ones and the spectral ones. And there were mythical warriors that kind of had this shape-shifting kind of power where they could kind of turn into (laughs) semi-dogs. They are sometimes represented as well.
2: And there's a lot of stuff with dogs and the wild hunt in British and Welsh traditions, apparently. The Welsh are really
1: into it. The black dog is a huge motif in Welsh folklore.
2: Yeah. Dogs are really key here. But yeah, hellhounds come from the wild hunt in the British Isles.
1: In that black dog tradition.
2: Mm -hmm. And then the original, where people think that this is spun from, is Odin's Chase and the Souls of the Dead. Odin is associated with the wind, and people believed that the souls of the dead were lifted up on the wind. So they believed that Odin was responsible for getting souls where they needed to go, and then he became associated with gathering the dead. Then, as this tale took hold, people began to associate storms with the passing of Odin and his procession of souls. So they believed that whenever there was a big thunderstorm and you saw lightning and you heard thunder... That was Odin and all the dead people going by your house. Heard and not seen. Just outside. Souls going where they need to go. Things. Definitely
1: similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: So we kind of covered the European tradition. But we'd be remiss if we didn't do a Texas story.
1: Texas. Texas. We <laughs> have to do a we Texas have story. have to do a Texas story. Let's put on our cowboy hats. Because, well, I mean, we're already wearing them because we're in Texas.
2: <laughs> yeah, they hand you cowboy hats and feed you chili as soon as you walk through the door. It's true. So I don't know if you're familiar with a little ditty called ghost riders in the sky
1: uh hell yeah, yeah okay so it was in blues brothers it was
2: in blues brothers it was you're right it was written in 1948 by a man named stan jones it references red-eyed steel-hooved cattle in the sky chased by the souls of damned cowboys and the witness the person who sees it is told that if he doesn't get his shit together or doesn't reform he'll have to join them one day
1: yeah it's a Good old country parable.
2: Mm -hmm. And Stan says that he heard the story when he was about 12 from
1: an old cowboy friend. And I believe Stan. It's true. I I believe him. (laughs) I think they were sitting around a campfire eating beans.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like on their bedrolls.
1: Very blazing saddles. Yes.
2: All of it. (laughs) So that happened. But the legend that this supposedly stems from is the legend of Stampede Mesa. And it's based in Crooks County, Texas. That's right there. And there was a man named Sawyer. The story varies. There are a lot of, you know, interpretations of it. But basically, 700 cattle went off a cliff in a storm. And someone blamed, like, specific hand for it. Claiming he'd waved a blanket and directed all the cows off the cliff. And there was some debate about who owned the cattle and stuff before this. And some some words mm-hmm. were exchanged. Words
1: were spoken.
2: But supposedly he directed all the cows off the cliff. During the storm. And so Sawyer decided he was going to get justice.
1: Cowboy justice.
2: Cowboy justice. And so he blindfolds the man's horse. And then ties the man to his horse. And then pushes the horse off the cliff. What did the horse do? If the story is going to progress, he's going to need a horse. So, people claim that the ghost cowboy appears and drives any cattle on the mesa off the cliff to this day. Or... Some people claim to see the entire herd and the phantom of the cowboy tied to his horse that is blindfolded riding either in the sky or on the ground. It can vary. And so the song has been recorded like 50 bajillion times.
1: Because it's a great song. It
2: is a great song. And the Doors song, Riders on the Storm, is based on it. And the Marvel comic character, Ghost Rider is based on an older character, also called Ghost Rider, who was a horror Western character Mm -hmm. that they just blatantly stole and made a motorcycle character. But it is based on this legend.
1: And Johnny Cash.
2: And Johnny Cash, basically, is all that that song needed to be amazing. And there's also a tradition of Swedish buck riders, which I just have to mention because they're ghost or devils who ride through the sky on flying goats. That were given to them by Satan.
1: Oh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's scary. I'm sorry. That's, that's creepy. Evil cowboys riding evil satanic goats yes. in the sky. In Sweden. Not going to Sweden. <laughs> yeah.
2: Buck riders.
1: So there's definitely a very storied tradition of these ghostly processions. Throughout the world, there are Japanese traditions, Asian traditions, American traditions, European traditions Native American, traditions.
2: Native American traditions. Native
1: American traditions. There might be Antarctic traditions. I don't know. But basically everywhere. Ask
2: the penguins.
1: March of the Penguins sequel? Horror sequel? <laughs> March of the Night Penguins. No! Get on this, Bloom House.
2: <laughs> Werner Herzog presents. Yes. <laughs>
1: Some baby penguins are going to (laughs) die. All of them.
0: All of them. Pebbles everywhere.
1: (laughs) So one of the other important traditions we talk about with these night marches are the taboos associated with it. Mm -hmm. And there are, of course, tons of cultural taboos throughout the world. But there are some specific ones related to marches and religious ceremonies and looking.
2: The taboos around looking are very interesting to me and when I think about looking taboos, I think about the day I was at home while I was pregnant with our first child and my mom had some puppies and she'd wormed the puppies and they were like doing what puppies that have been wormed have do. And so there were gross little worm poops all over the place. Yeah, yeah, we got it. Okay. Right. <laughs> and so my dad's like, oh, my God, Samantha, don't look at that. And I'm like, what? I did, wasn't planning on it, but why? And he's like, you're going to mark the baby. Mark the baby, you say? <laughs> I do say mark the baby. So apparently this is one of my family's like holdouts from old country Wives tales, probably
1: Spanish Native American tradition.
2: I don't know because it's on my mom's side too. Uh, hmm. Yeah, so I have no idea. But apparently, my granny Mert marked the baby uh, when she was in a strawberry patch picking strawberries, and she was pregnant with I think Aunt O.C. and she saw a snake. And it scared her, it fell down, and she grabbed her leg by accident. And so that's why my Aunt Osi had a strawberry-shaped birthmark on her leg, because she saw something gross while she was pregnant.
1: Birthmarks and hemangiomas are a normal thing that happens to a lot of babies. <laughs> or you
2: see a snake and grab your leg in the strawberry patch, and Aunt Osi ends up <laughs> with
1: a strawberry birthmark. It's not related to seeing a snake. <laughs> <laughs> Says you. <laughs> what do I know? <laughs> what do I know about babies? <laughs> Nothing. So that's my personal story about looking taboos <laughs> Well, my Catholic bells started ringing, and they oh, haven't good. they haven't They're... rung in a while.
2: Okay, all right.
1: they've been way too silent. Okay. you know, I think of all of the traditions of the sacrament
2: in mm-hmm.
1: Catholicism. Okay, and it's changed a lot over the years, but centuries ago, there was really some taboos about looking upon it.
2: Like seeing the bread and the wine before? Right, nowadays,
1: it's not a big deal to even have ceremonies where you can look at it, but consecrated sacraments are kept in a tabernacle, mm-hmm. a quiet, dark, little bejeweled, you know, <laughs> gilded box.
2: Bedazzled, you say?
1: Cabinet. It was traditionally kept on the altar, and the altar was placed up against the wall. Mm-hmm. Now, if you've ever been in any church, any Christian church, you know that most of the time the altar is not against the wall, including Catholic churches, because that has changed over the years. Mm-hmm. And so the big change is actually at Vatican II, which was a big reformation. JP two, and-
2: Vatican II is pre-JP two. Yes. I like JP two. <laughs>
1: You just like saying JP too.
2: He's my homeboy. <laughs> I love his red shoes.
1: And so, originally, Catholic tradition had holding mass ad orientum, which is Latin for to the east. Okay. Which, even the title, even centuries ago, was kind of a misnomer. But the idea was that the altar was supposed to be facing the east. Okay. Which is kind of the beginning of heaven. As okay. the sun
2: rises there? Yes. Okay.
1: And so they would face the altar away from the congregation, which people thought of as kind of an odd thing that they were turning their back to the congregation. Okay. But actually they were more like leading the congregation was the thought.
2: Okay, so it's just like they're the first in line. Right. Of a procession. Yes. Toward the altar.
1: Yes. Okay. And they were the celebrant towards this holy kind of ceremony. That changed. You know, it's now... The altars are pulled back out. They've moved the tabernacle from the altar to a separate place mm-hmm. to an even more hidden place. <laughs> you can't actually go there and worship and things like that. But it is kinda it always was interesting to me even as a child that it was like hidden in a dark corner mm-hmm. in churches. And no one really like talked
2: about it. <laughs> I don't know. Oh baby, there's so much the Catholic Church don't talk about.
1: <laughs> but now they have the versus populum where they you know, go behind the altar and face the congregation. But I found some interesting criticism of it. Bishop Slattery of Tulsa, not a big fan. (laughs) And he thought it broke away with ancient tradition and it changed, like, the worshiping of God to, like, a conversation about God, like, made it less kind of holy. And there was, like, an kind of inordinate importance of the celebrant. So it took away from that divinity and made it more of like personality. Like the priest is hosting
2: variety hour. Yes. I get what he's saying.
1: I I, kind of make, it makes sense.
2: I kind of get what he's saying. So I found an interesting thing and it's also about the sacrament.
1: Your Catholic bells
2: are ringing. I don't have have Catholic bells. I have folklore bells and I found this brilliant publication that was a journal about folklore that was published in 1891. It was volume two. It was in, there was one before it, but um, they talked about the procession of the sacrament when they would take it out of the church and how people were instructed in olden days, they say in
1: 1891,
2: it was really old <laughs> to cover their windows with tapestries. Whenever the sacrament was being, Processed through town, they believed that it dated back to Roman times. This importance of covering your windows when the sacrament goes so back
1: pre-Christianity, mm-hmm. pre-Catholic pagans, <gasps>
2: no. dirty pagans,
1: no. heathens, heathens.
2: But there had been a plague, and the oracles looked at their chicken guts and said to the people that it had happened because people were looking down on the gods. And no one really knew what that meant, and people got very confused and kerfuffled, and they waited to hear. And one day, a boy went to his mother, a young boy, and said that he had gazed down on the procession of Diana and looked into the chariot and saw the order of the mysteries therein.
1: Hmm, what do you see?
2: I don't know, it's a mystery. But she quickly went to the Senate with a snooze, as you do. They stab her? They did not. They just said, okay, so from now on, when people are processing through the street with anything to do with any of the gods, you have to cover your windows if you are higher than the ground floor, because you may not look down upon the gods. And so when they put out this decree, the plague went away. And so the artifact, the beginnings of not looking at the sacrament may have pagan roots.
1: As a lot of things do in Catholicism.
2: You know how you said there are things you don't talk about in Catholicism.
1: Only your angry anti-Catholic friend on Facebook posts about Saturnalia every Christmas. (laughs) So another interesting element of the Night Marchers tradition um, that's seen again around the world, especially in major religions.
2: Now, to me, one of the most striking and important things about the Night Marchers is the sort of permission or privilege that's granted to those who have family members or ancestors who are part of the night march
1: well you can see that in the medieval story that you told Mm -hmm. where his brother comes out and he's kind of saved by him almost Right. of course he's like you're going to die get (laughs) your shit
2: straight and say a mass we need t-shirts that say get your shit straight and say a mass
1: I think my auntie has that stitched on a pillow
2: she does actually I've seen it
1: A lot of the traditions in Hawaii do have some roots in Polynesian and Asian culture. Mm -hmm. And so one thing I thought of when we were talking about this is the ghost festival in China and that area of Asia. It's also celebrated in other countries around there. Feast of Ghosts. Yes, or also called the Feast of the Hungry Ghosts. And so this happens on the 15th day of the 7th lunar month. And this is when the gates of hell, their version of hell, open. And in some traditions, the gates of heaven open as well. Okay. So the gates are just open. (laughs) This is a belief that is upheld by the Taoists and Buddhists. But it's felt that this may have roots in older folk traditions, the Taoist religion of the area. Okay. And some people even think it could come from India, of course, where Buddhism comes from, but, you know. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and they do a lot of different things at this time. So they will offer up ritualistic food offerings. They'll have great feasts at night, and they'll set a place with an empty chair. Sound like any other traditions you've ever heard of? Dia de los Muertos. Yes, and the Jewish tradition.
2: Oh, yeah, okay.
1: Uh, setting a place for Elijah. In some places in Asia, it's even celebrated for, like, the entire month. The gates are open for the whole month. so this is a ghost month. The interesting thing is they have a lot of festivals and rituals honoring the dead and their ancestral spirits. Mm-hmm. But those are usually the older ancestral spirits. So they have that.
2: So with wisdom comes age, even of your spirit.
1: Well, right. You know, they always you know, respected their elders. It's a very important part of mm-hmm. this culture. But in this tradition, they respect all of the dead. So it could be people of your age, your parents' age, kids, anybody. Okay. All of the spirits are honored.
2: When you say the older spirits, do you mean the people who were older at their time of death or people who have been dead longer?
1: Older generations. Okay. Like I said, there's varying traditions. Sometimes it's just hell that's opened up. Sometimes it's it's heaven as well. And so there are numerous amounts of ghosts wandering around.
2: Okay. During hell month.
1: Ghost month. Okay. Ghost month. And the ghosts that you're worried about <laughs> are believed to be the ancestors of those who forgot to pay tribute to them after they died are those not given a proper burial. So the Lapu. Yes. Okay. And so people will pay tribute to their families and their ancestors, but also to the other spirits because they don't want these unknown, wondering spirits to come around and intrude on their lives. And bring misfortune. So
2: they're appeasing them.
1: Right. And so there are a lot of interesting taboos related to this as well. They want to avoid kind of coming in contact with these ghosts. They, I would too. Yeah. Lots of interesting things. They won't go swimming. Why? Drowned ghosts. Oh. <laughs> you won't wear red. Because of Star Trek. Because it attracts ghosts. do won't sing or whistle or open an umbrella inside. You keep away from walls because ghosts like to stick to walls.
2: Wallflowers, these ghosts.
1: Yes. You do not celebrate your birthday at night if you are born in this month. Obviously. Don't take selfies.
2: What? Why?
1: Because they'll appear behind you. Uh
2: Uh-uh. I don't like it.
1: (laughs) And don't sleep facing a mirror.
2: Because ghosts can come through mirrors.
1: It helps guide them. And so an interesting element of this is 14 days after they have a ritual of releasing paper boats and lanterns that are lit, you know, signifying, giving directions to these lost ghosts and spirit of ancestors and other deities back to the afterlife. And they say that, you know, when the light goes out, they know that they've returned. I like that. This is nice as ghost skip. So you can see that kind of ancestral... Spirit, wandering, sometimes being the good ones, if you can say that, the ones that are your relatives that they just want to be honored, but also sometimes the bad ones, and you know you're not wanting to cross their paths. Unscrupulous ghost. Mm-hmm. And like you said, there is some similarity here. I mean, I'm sure a lot of our you know Western listeners think, oh, Halloween,
2: right? All Hallows Eve,
1: All right? The All traditional Saints Day, Halloween yeah. where it's very similar. And, of course, Day of the Dead.
2: Yes. So I'm going to go ahead and say that another key feature of the Night Marchers legend is the preservation of culture.
1: Oh, of course. I mean, that is such an important element of all of folklore.
2: Right. But I think that there is such an active component of that legend where it really does serve to inform people about the past and their heritage in ways that other stories might not.
1: Yes, it's a very direct Mm -hmm. Like, it's not very veiled.
2: I think that's true because, like, the threatened, the people who revere and understand this culture, who are under threat from Western influence, I guess you could say, sort of become the threat.
1: Right, they can come through. They can march through your new buildings. Mm -hmm. Through your kinkos. Yes.
2: (laughs) And it sort of subverts the status quo, where these people whose culture has been undermined sort of regain power, and if you don't know what to do when you see them, you're dead.
1: You're dead. Your horses are dead.
2: (laughs) Move your barn. I thought it was really interesting. When I was researching the helmets and cloaks worn by chiefs and kings, I found a lot of news stories covering the return of the cloak and helmet that were presented to Captain Cook. Um, They've been returned to Hawaii through an agreement with the National Museum of New Zealand, And they're on extended loan for at least 10 years. And they've finally been brought back to the island. And they're being shown off in an exhibit that's called Bound Together. And it's about the way that Native Hawaiians interact with their land. The land creates the culture, creates the landscape, creates the... You know, it's the reflexive relationship. That ornamental, traditional garment has come home and been divorced from the european legacy of conquest and brought back to a rightful place of reverence within that culture
1: yeah i think that's great makes me think of the egyptian before the arab spring (laughs) you know they had that big movement to get back important relics
2: right like uh the nefertiti bust in boston that we saw
1: right yeah definitely and you know because all these things were taken by the europeans (laughs) and shown off to be like look how great we are look what we stole which my ancestors helped. I know, like directly. <laughs> like, I'm sorry.
2: Like your name is on an obelisk somewhere. In Paris. Yeah. yeah.
1: Sorry about that. I'm bad. White um, man guilt. Uh, well, you know, I think of uh, the Hawaiian language, which I've been <laughs> reading too much about because I want to not mispronounce everything. It was eventually... Even though the Europeans helped develop the written language in the early 18th century, by the end of the 18th century, it was banned from all schools.
2: Oh, I'm seeing Catholic nuns wrapping knuckles, are you?
1: Well, which is what happened to my ancestors, (laughs) a Cajun French tradition. And so it was banned, and that's really what is going to kill it. Yeah, we've talked about
2: um, the importance of language preservation and the tragedy of dying languages on past episodes. And it's something that I personally feel is infinitely tragic when it happens. And any time that you have access to learn a language, a traditional language, I wish you would. I, I mean, just like, that is so important. If your grandmother
1: speaks something, go learn a few words, learn what you can. So as anthropology and all this interesting culture started to come into the forefront, there was a big push to make Hawaiian the state language mm-hmm. and it did in 1978 so english and hawaiian are the state languages of hawaii
2: and what's the national language of the united states jacob
1: there isn't one
2: i love that fact it makes me so happy
1: it's american
2: it's not american it's that is not written down anywhere
1: i'm pretty sure it is In 1983, there was a big revival to get the language back in schools and back to teaching kids. And at that time, there were less than 50 kids that spoke Hawaiian. And so now they teach it as a language you can learn in schools, and there are Hawaiian immersion schools.
2: That's so great. And so
1: now over 2,000 children speak Hawaiian, which is still a small percentage, but it's great.
2: It's better than 50.
1: And in those immersion schools, of course, they teach your traditional um schooling but they also teach some traditional hawaiian ways such as like boating and growing sweet potatoes and things like that
2: i think that's really fabulous we've talked a lot about in that episode we did where we talked about language preservation we did talk about some of their efforts to preserve native american languages in the continental united states and i think that, that effort has been hard fought well won And it makes me really happy anytime I hear about people making an effort.
1: Well, you know, speaking of Native Americans.
2: Oh, yes.
1: As people are wont to do. Yes. I read an amazing legend that I think ties in Mm -hmm. on Facebook.
2: You make me nervous when you read things on Facebook, Jacob.
1: This is an ancient Native American prophecy from the Cree. Okay. And it's about a time... When the earth will be ravaged of its resources, the sea blackened and deer dropping dead in their tracks. Mm-hmm. Before it's too late, Indian would regain his spirit and teach the white man reverence for the earth and band together to become the warriors of the rainbow.
2: Like the Hawaiian football team?
1: No, this isn't anything. Okay. <laughs> so the keepers of the legends stories cultural rituals and myths and all the ancient tribal customs would be needed to restore the earth and its people back to health teach them the way of the great spirit and a new culture of love
2: okay this sounds very san francisco like circa 1968 like i
1: i don't know because it is are you serious
2: (laughs) what do you mean that it was a Cree prophecy
1: This is what we like to call cultural appropriation.
2: Are you serious? No.
1: (laughs) Or my new favorite term, fake lore, (laughs) which I kind of want to rename the podcast. (laughs) So this is a hotly debated topic. Okay. There are traditional Native American stories about rainbow people. Okay. There are traditional Native stories about kind of end of... Times people coming and coming together and kind of rebuilding the earth. Okay. But this story <laughs> derives from a 1962 book called Warriors of the Rainbow by William Willowia and Vincent Brown. And so they state this is a Cree tradition. There, there's actually no Cree stories related to this. Even they just picked one out of a hat. It's like kind of based on a Hopi story. What were there were like
2: four letters that's gotta be the same? I mean what? How? How? Those are not even like in the same biome.
1: Well, you know, some people say it was created as like a second coming reference and to like evangelize Native Americans. Other people claim that it was just kind of a hippie environmentalist push.
2: I mean, it sounds like Charlie Manson bullshit.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're just kind of building this idea of the you know, environmental Native American who was one with the earth and noble, savage bullshit. It
2: sounds so like, it sounds like a white guy's idea of Native American understanding of the earth's importance.
1: Well, that's exactly what it is. Um because this is just a great example of kind of like how that movement and the new age movement will just appropriate these ideas and take a real idea, a real tradition, there are real stories there have similarity to this and use it for their own gain and alter it. And the best example of this is the co-founder of Greenpeace, Bob Hunter, loved this book. And their third ship was called Rainbow Warrior.
2: No, no, no. Greenpeace comes from fake Native American made-up white boy bullshit. Are you really serious? Yeah. Where did he find this book? Like, how did? Okay, so
1: I don't know if this is true. More fake lore, you say? But I want it to be true. Okay. So I'm gonna say it.
2: All right.
1: He was giving a copy by a wondering dulcimer maker. In 1969. I don't think that's true, but I want it to be. So I'm going to say it is.
2: Okay. It's gospel. I mean,
1: they're saying shit's true. Why can't <laughs> I? But like I said, just <clears throat> great example, cultural appropriation. And, I, you know, I found this great quote by this Native American author, Sherman Alexie. And he writes about this in his poem, How to Write the Great American Indian Novel.
2: That's the name of the poem. I love it, right? That's so good.
1: He says, White people must carry an Indian deep inside themselves. If the interior Indian is male, then he must be a warrior, especially if he is inside a white man. In the great American Indian novel, when it is finally written, all of the white people will be Indians, and all of the Indians will be ghosts.
2: Damn, Sherman. Damn.
1: Drop the mic. I just so understand the frustration, though.
2: No, I do, too. I remember, like, in a folklore class when I was at LSU, we were in the discussion portion of the class, and she asked if there was anyone who had cultural backgrounds other than, you know, just Caucasian, kind of white American. And I said that my family was Native American and Spanish from a little community near the Texas line in Louisiana. And she's like, well, how do you think that culture has impacted your life? And I didn't have an answer. It made me really sad. But it's like it's been so stamped out. It's been so eradicated that you're either marginalized for being a member of that community or people have tried to enter Western culture and just completely eliminated it. I feel like I'm pretending when I try to have a connection to my tribe. You know, like I feel like I'm mocking it almost because i have light hair and blue eyes and it feels silly but then you see people like wearing you know who take on it's kind of become the hippie mascot
1: right right if you ever go to this kind of new age store as you see all of this native america and big quotes stuff
2: you can sage you can sage your own home using an Eagle feather purchased mm. at your new age store because you're a proud member of the what?
1: Yeah. tribe. Yeah.
2: I mean like, come on, but yeah, it, it's an interesting phenomena for sure. I'm sorry that your rainbow warrior story isn't true.
1: It's okay. <laughs> I'll survive.
2: Stop reading things on Facebook.
1: My aunt posted
2: it. <laughs> but there is a great story. That's sort of tied to it. It was a chief called Chief Seattle. And I'm going to let you guess what part of the country he was from. Northeast. False. He's a Pacific Northwest fella. He was born near Camp Washington. He was a member of the Duwamish and the Suquamish tribes. And he eventually became the chief of the Duwamish people. And they were kind of a stationary hunter-gatherer tribe, which was very rare at that time. And they... Hunted bear and shellfished and killed salmon and things. But anyway, he had a great reputation as an orator. And it was said that you could hear his voice three quarters of a mile away. He was six feet tall back in the 1860s, which was an accomplishment because the average person was like five fives. So I think he was probably a pretty imposing figure. But during a meeting with the governor of Washington in 1853, he gave a speech. Now, the speech was given in his native language and then translated into another native language and then translated into English. But I'm going to quote from the earliest known transcription or translation, which was taken down by Henry Smith. The ashes of our ancestors are sacred and their final resting place is hallowed ground while you wander away from the tombs of your fathers seemingly without regret. Your religion was written on tablets of stone by the iron finger of an angry God, lest you might forget it. The red man could never remember nor comprehend it. Our religion is the traditions of our ancestors, the dreams of our old men, given them by the Great Spirit, and their visions of our shamans, and it is written on the hearts of our people. Your dead cease to love you, and the homes of their nativity, as soon as they pass the portals of the tomb, they wander far off beyond the stars and are soon forgotten and never return. Our dead never forget the beautiful world that gave them being, they still love its winding rivers, its great mountains, and its sequestered vales, and they ever yearn in tenderest affection over the lonely hearted living and often return to visit and comfort them. Men come and go, like the waves of the sea, a tear, a dirge, and they are gone from our longing eyes forever. Even the white man whose God walked and talked with him, as friend to friend, is not exempt from common destiny. We may be brothers after all. We shall see. The noble braves and the fond mothers, And glad-hearted maidens and the little children who lived and rejoiced here and whose very names are now forgotten still love these solitudes and their deep fastnesses at eventide grow shadowy with the presence of dusky spirits. And when the last red man shall have perished from the earth and his memory among white men shall have become a myth, these shores shall swarm with the invisible dead of my tribe and when your children's children shall think themselves alone in a field the store the shop upon the highway or in the silence of the woods they will not be alone in all the earth there is no place dedicated to solitude at night when the streets of your cities and villages shall be silent and you think them deserted they will throng with the returning ghost at once filled and still love this beautiful land. The white man will never be alone. Let him be just and deal kindly with my people, for the dead are not altogether powerless.
1: Yeah, I think it's another great example of a culture that's dying out. Right. And he knew it was coming, he knew that this was happening. He could see it happening to his. Fellow Native Americans.
2: This was recited during a meeting he had with a governor of Washington who was attempting to purchase the lands of the tribe. And they were being sent to a reservation. And they knew that they were losing their heritage, their sense of place, their culture. And he found empowerment through ghosts.
1: Right, just as you can say the Hawaiian people are. You know, they're finding empowerment. They're finding their culture. Through these stories, these stories of the night marches, of their great kings, of their chiefs and their ancestors coming back, reminding them of their culture.
2: Right, but it's all just
1: a story. Yeah, it's just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining
0: Podcasts society-13.com I like to listen.